Good morning. Welcome to Journey. Let's stand in worship this morning. Feel free to clap, dance, jump, whatever feels good. Brighter than any star in the sky, your light shining through the dark of the night, Jesus forever. I find all that I am in your love, love, love. You are. Some people are gone. We had a marriage retreat this weekend, and we've been getting updates from them. They're having a great time, but we are going to be having a great time here this morning. Uh, my name is Bianca, and we not only love to sing first thing in the morning, but we actually like to take a little time and offer up our prayer in the morning. Um, so there's a lot of things that are going on in our lives, good, bad, ugly, 
um, we want to at Journey stand together and be able to bring those things to the Lord. So as I pray this morning, if there's things that are going on in your life, in your immediate world, whether um, they're not good things or they're great things, um, let's just offer those up to the Lord today. Let's uh, think about those things, or even if you want to pray yourself, you can. I'll just be praying over all of us. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for today. God, we thank you that we have a home here at Journey, that we can come and we can lift our praises to you, God, and lift our needs and our worries to you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would go before every single thing going on in our world, going on in the world of the people that we love. Um, God, we lay them at your feet. Where there is worry, God, I pray that you would come and you would bring peace, you would bring um, joy in the midst of pain, God. And Lord, where there is joy and happiness, God, I pray that you would um, just continue to give us uh, a sense of your love and your presence in those moments, God. Lord, we love you so much. We give you everything that we have in Jesus' name. Amen.
Good morning, everybody. I hope you guys are having a great morning today. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. You can stand too. That would just be kind of weird, but it's up to you. Um, my name is Shane. I'm going to be talking to you guys about giving this morning. Uh, like many of you that have been going through life groups, um, if you haven't joined a life group yet, please join it. Please get involved in one. They're really awesome. They're going through an awesome book. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, they're going through an awesome book. Um, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and like them, I have been reading this book personally. Um, I'm not going to give you any spoiler alerts because our series is based on this book, so no details from me, um, but I have been reading it, and something that really stuck out to me as I was reading it is um, Peter Schizero, difficult last name, um, he starts going through different Bible characters and some characteristics that he sees, some character traits that they have. Um, and one of them that's really stuck out to me was this, in, he calls it an incredible capacity to wait on the Lord. Um, for example, you have Abraham, Abraham, that's an interesting name. You have Abraham, who waited until he was 100 years old to have his son that was promised to him, past his wife's biological ability to have kids. They had a son, he was 100 years old. Um, David, King David was anointed to become king. And then he waited, he, after being anointed, he was running from an estimated seven to 10 years, he was running for his life after being anointed before he ever became king. And so you have these Bible characters that he uses as examples that had this incredible ability to wait on what God was gonna do. And ultimately, what it boils down to me, what I see is this faith, this huge faith that they have. Um, and I'm like, God, I want that. I would like to have that, that's awesome. So I woke up the next morning and I had really big faith. It was awesome, no, that's not how it worked. Um, but I wish that's how it worked. But I, as I began to pray through it, I, I felt like God started to show me that faith, I think, sometimes is misconstrued as like this essence that we can muster up. Like it's something that you just, oh man, I want to have big faith, so I'm going to make myself, I'm going to flex myself into big faith. But that's not how it works. Actually, I felt like as I started to pray through it, God was like, Faith is like more, much more like a muscle or like a stamina that you build and you continue to grow and you continue to step into and it's something that you have to, you have to work on. So for me, why I love tithing is because it's so practical. It's something that you can do consistently that grows your faith and grows your ability to trust in what God's going to do. I'm, what I'm not saying is that you're going to tithe and that you're going to be like Abraham or you're going to be like David and you're going to become king or something like that. What I am saying is that tithing is something really practical that you can consistently choose to do that's going to grow your faith in a way that these spiritual giants had an ability to wait on God and had a faith that brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. And I think our loved ones, I think our families, I think the Antelope Valley needs a little bit of the kingdom to come to earth. And I think tithing is a practical way for us to step into what God's doing. And it's a practical way for us to continue to grow our faith and to grow our belief and our trust in what God's going to do. So as the ushers come forward, I want to pray over to this morning's tithe and ask that God would just continue to grow our ability to wait on him and grow our faith this, this morning. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we get to be here, Lord. Thank you that we have the ability, that you've given us such practical steps, Lord, to step into your movement, that you've given us practical ways for us to step into what you're doing here on earth, Lord God, that you've given us ways to step into bringing the kingdom to earth, Lord God. I pray that you would bless this morning's tithe, Lord God, that, um, that you would just continue to grow our hearts, grow our ability to wait on you, and grow our faith this morning, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Tom is going to join me on stage, and he is actually going to do announcements this morning, and I'm going to leave.
thank you. Good job. Good morning, everyone. How you guys doing? Hey, I would uh, like to welcome all of you folks here and the folks on, I guess there's uh, internet somewhere around here. That's what all the, us old folks say is internet. So anyways, I'd like to welcome you guys all here today. I uh, want to let you know we have a cry room back in the back of the corner over there. If you guys have any little kids that are getting a little bit fussy and you need to uh, uh, go find a place to hide, that's a good place to go. Um, we also would like to uh, let the uh, fifth and sixth graders know that it is time for you guys to get up and go head to your class. All right, uh, so what do we have? We have uh, coming up on April 2nd, we have a Connect Night. It is going to be from 6.30 to 8. Uh, they uh, have, I believe it's in here, we have a bunch of people get together. You guys get to, know, get to know each other, talk, have a good time. It's a good deal. And if that's not good enough for you, we also have a food cart coming in, so you guys can go ahead and get yourself some good chow. I think you guys would enjoy that. And then uh, we're coming up on that time of year now, probably our favorite. It's uh, Easter. Easter is going to be on April 21st, and we'll be having services uh, at 9 o'clock and at 1030. And then our last announcement is uh, we have a new venue for you guys to be able to watch this when you're not here. It's called uh, AV, what is it, liveavjourney.com. You guys can log into there and you guys can actually see uh, the services here. And uh, that's a good way, if you can't make it here, to go ahead and uh, tune in to what's going on. So that's all of our announcements for today. I'm going to go ahead and let you guys stand up, welcome your friends next to you, shake hands, say hello. And uh, thank you all. Good morning, good morning. First service is always so subdued. But I go to get to second service and it's really lively. First service, everybody's like, I'm like, oh God, this is gonna be rough. Um, it's exciting to be with you guys this morning. My family, all of them who would be particularly in the front row are all at marriage retreat. So um, yeah, we're excited to have them away. It means I get to do whatever I want, so you know. <laughs> Uh, no, it's exciting. This is an incredible series that we're in. We're in the healthy me. Uh, some people love it. Some people hate it. It may be a little uncomfortable for some. Uh, but I think this is one of the most incredible and important series we will ever do. And honestly, I think we will probably do it again next month. You know, we're just going to keep doing this until we all get it. But I think it's important because what you begin to realize once you've been in church for any period of time is 
Growing older does not necessarily mean growing more mature. You can get older and not actually grow up and mature at all. I've met some really emotionally mature and therefore spiritually mature young people, and I've equally met some very immature, more seasoned individuals, as it were. You know, like, I, I think the church is interesting because we, you know, we assume, you know, Proverbs talks about gray hair being our wisdom and, and, and all of these things, but the longer you're in church, you realize, like, nah, people are just kind of people. And uh, everybody's just kind of trying to figure this out and do what they can. And most of us are just limping through life, trying to do the best we can with what we've got based on what we've learned growing up. You know what I mean? We're all doing the best that we can. And, and yet, a lot of times it feels like we're just surviving. And I think that a lot of what church is and becomes is just kind of, a, it's just kind of an add-on coping for a kind of, you know, oh, for the most part, for most people's lives, kind of sucky life. That's like, well, how do we improve it? Let's just go to church. It'll help, hopefully it'll just make me feel better for the day, and then I'll get through the week, and we'll go on from there. But in reality, it doesn't go beyond scratching the surface of what it is about us that we are in desperate need of. I think a lot of times church, you know, it doesn't reach the deep core hurts, the issues, the struggles, the tensions of life. And so this morning, I want to, I'm going to break down, my dad has been talking about this because the whole premise of the healthy me is that you cannot be spiritually mature and not be emotionally mature. They actually go hand in hand. And you may not agree with this, but I don't care. <laughs> Because I've seen this time and time again. I really do believe that this is true. I believe that we live in a culture, and the enemy knows this, so he's built into our culture uh, this voice that's, that diminishes and minimizes our emotions. Women, all, you know, I have uh, especially family who are called drama queens all growing up, and so they feel very insecure about showcasing any of their emotions. Men are taught from early on, if you display your emotions, you're weak. I mean, women struggle with this too. A lot, of, a lot of times that idea of vulnerability, of emotional awareness actually creates uh, a sense of weakness in us. It makes us feel less than, and yet it has happened countless times where I will sit across from somebody who is in some kind of crisis or desperate need, and I start asking them why they do some of the things that they do, where some of these patterns come from, and the answer so much of the time is always the same. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think that they're lying. I think that genuinely, most of the time, we don't know. You don't know why you have destructive patterns. You don't know why you tend to lie. Or why you, you know, why you struggle with intimacy issues. Or why you are emotionally just disconnected. Or why you, you know, you have issues with anger or whatever. There, we each have these things and I think one of the greatest struggles and one of that permeates the church is that we're just unaware. We are completely oblivious to what's going on on the inner parts and our inner workings. So we get into fights with our significant others. We struggle in our intense, tense relationships with our kids. Um, our, you know, we hold resentment that we can't seem to pinpoint against our families, our parents. But why? And the struggle and the tension is, folks, we can't afford to just be okay with not knowing. 
in order to become the men and women of God that I believe he is calling us to, and it doesn't matter how young or how old you are in this room, you are never too old to understand in order to step further in to the life that God has for you. Because if you've got breath, God's not done with your life yet. And so this morning as we hit this, I'm going to hit focus on um, the, the third chapter kind of in this Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book. And I'm going to kind of highlight some of the things, but it's called Going Back in Order to Go Forward. You've got to go back in order to go forward. And some of you, my positivity people in this room, are going to struggle because your instinct is like you're, gonna, you're being negative. You're, you're a little negative. And you may be right. There is truth to that. It's not the first time I've been accused of that before. But I also believe that there is deep and profound truth to this. Um, what this is not, because what we're going to do is looking back in order to look forward is I want to begin to help us create um, a perspective and an awareness of how our families and the, the, our families of origin, the world that we grew up in, affects who we are and how we think and function today. That a lot of times Christians, as much as anybody else, are guilty of compartmentalizing our lives. We want to focus on the now without giving any credit to the fact that what, we have, what we've been brought up in has actually affected who we are today. And we don't get to compartmentalize because you aren't a compartmentalized person. You're a whole person and your experiences and your feelings and the world that you grew up in has a profound effect on who you become and who you will become in the future. And the only way to change those things that you don't want to be true about your family is to be aware of them in the first place so that we can bring them to God and allow him to change them. Because I believe that God has profound and important things to do through his church. I believe that he wants to do incredible things through your life, your individual life, through your families and marriages. My prayer as we have people at the marriage retreat is that people are going to come back with their marriages, with them inspired and their marriages healing and growing and people to look around that don't know anything about the fact that they go to church and to be able to say, wow, I want what you have. What is that? And we can say it's Jesus. Nobody's going to say it's a perfect marriage or an easy marriage or that everything's all together. But even for you, your relationships, it matters. And our families play a significant part in this. It matters. Today, we're going to look at, at how our family affects who we are today. And this is, you know, this is a tough topic for me because I'm loyal to my family. I am. Some of you may feel the same way, like, I don't want to look at my family to blame them for, like, where I'm at now. I'm, I love my family. I am very close to my family. So to go into this, even to break down into this, is really hard for me. Um, because I think it's one of those things that you look at and you're like, I mean, I, it's not their fault. But here's what we're not doing. We're not blame shifting, and we're not using the people in our world as scapegoats. We're, there, we're bringing awareness to help understand, and in doing so, actually what you're going to find is as part of this healing, and as we look, at, look back into past generations, because Scripture kind of makes it clear in Exodus that God talks about that the sin of the fathers 
are punishable to the third and fourth generation of sons and their kids. And how you translate that can be different. But what we do know, and it, it, there's a lot of disagreement in some of that and how that, how that functions and how that works. But what we do know is that there is generational sin that comes down through the line. It's unavoidable. Even if it's just purely because of the fact that it, it, it's affected in DNA or it's also a part of just function. If, if you had a dad who went to prison, that's going to affect you. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go to prison, but it does mean that there's going to be profound effects of not having that father figure in your life and the way that you develop who you are as a person. Right? So as we're looking at this, and I'm looking at my family, I started thinking back, and um, I remember my mom telling me a story about my grandpa when, we, when I was very, very little. And uh, I was the firstborn. Chase is the tallest, so he looks the oldest. I'm not bitter about it. You know, whatever. God, you're, it's fine. Um, I'll look better when we're older, so it's fine. He can be the old one. Um, but when we, were, when we were young, when I was really little, I remember being at my grandpa's house, or my grandparents' house, we would do family stuff all the time, because family has always been a part of who we are as a family, is that that is intentional, important time. And so I remember uh, being really, really little, and my mom describes this time at the dinner table where I may have not been, you know, behaving in accordance with the way that my grandpa saw fit. This is my dad's dad, my grandpa. Um, and, and so he got to the point where he was just, you know, maybe fed up with it. He just wasn't handling it. And, and so all that, all that I was told, I don't recall any of this. You'll understand why maybe afterwards. But at some point during dinner, he just leans over and flicks me in the side of the head. And my head just kind of goes like this, and I have, like, my ears ringing. And my grandpa's got the flick of death. You know, he worked with his hands his whole life. So if he flicked you, it was like getting punched in the side of the head. And, and so, you know, I might have short-term memory loss now as a result. I don't know what happened, but I do know that my mom about flipped a lid. She, you know, about came unglued and was like, don't you ever touch my son. You know, and, like, the inner uh, demon came out of some, you know, of some kind. We had to cast that out later. It was totally fine. She, you know, this, this whole experience, though, brought out this interesting dynamic. But you fast forward a couple years, and we were all at the dinner table, and I do remember this one. We were at the dinner table, and me and Chase were messing around and, like, kind of throwing food at each other and just not really, like, behaving. And out of nowhere, I'm looking this way, and out of nowhere, I go to turn, and I get flicked upside the head. This time, it's my father who is doing it. And I looked at him, and I was like, how dare you, you know? And I punished him by not eating my dinner, you know? And I was like, well, fine, I'm not hungry anymore. And then I was really hungry for the night, and I punished myself instead of him. But isn't it interesting how this dynamic, these dynamics start to go down? You don't know why. You don't always know why. You don't know, it's not always clear how these things work and, and what it looks like. And I think sometimes we don't even know or how to characterize our kinds of, our family's dysfunction how functional or how dysfunctional our family was. I think most of us, because it was normal to us, just think it's normal. So I want to take a look at, um, through the book, they have, uh, he has a, the beaver system model. And uh, this is just kind of an easy way, of, a brief way. There's five levels, starting with the most unhealthy, moving into more healthy. And I want you to pick one that characterizes your family. You're not going to talk about it. Um, 
because that would be chaos in here. But I want you to just look at it. I want you to begin to understand. Take a, take a look and see which one resonates with you as far as your family. Because I think this is going to be important as we begin to dive into how our family affects us and how we move forward into healthy emotional and spirituality so i want you to take a look at the fifth one this is the most unhealthy and this is what it says for level five this is the family in pain this is a, a severely disturbed family real leadership is totally lacking chaos uncertainty confusion and turmoil are the adjectives that describe these homes conflicts are never dealt with or resolved there is no ability to look at issues with clarity. Number four is the borderline family. This is a polarized family instead of anarchy, as in level five, a dictatorship rules here. Instead of rules, this home has, has thing but black and white rules. We call that a typo. Okay, I brought the book just in case. Instead of rules, this home has nothing but black and white rules. There it is. There are rigid ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving that are expected of all members. Individuals cannot say, I disagree with what you said. Are you a level four? The family you grew up in. I'm not talking, and can I just clarify? This is not what we're talking about, is not where your family is now, per se. But where it was, the message you received growing up, what was the main family function growing up? When you were young, growing up, what did it look like before, maybe today? The third, level three, is the rule-bound family. This family is in no chaos. I'm going to read it from here. This family is not in chaos or under a dictatorship. It is healthier than level four. Feel, feeling loved and good about oneself, however, depends on obeying the spoken and unspoken rules of the family. If you loved me, you would do all the things you know will meet with my approval. There is an invisible referee with the rules of the system being more important than the individual. A subtle level of manipulation, intimidation, and guilt permeates the home. And then... There, is num there are levels two and one, the adequate family and the optimal family. In these families, there's an ability to be flexible and cherish each other, individual mem or each individual member, while at the same time valuing a sense of closeness. Good feelings, trust, and teamwork by the parents enable members to work through difficulties and conflicts. What distinguishes level two families from level one can be summed up in one word, delight. Level one families truly delight in being with one another. Now, as you look at those, maybe this all of a sudden just got real, real for you. Like this understanding of what kind of relationship and family function you grew up in. Um, I think if... For most people who grew up in a traditional Christian family, yours starts to look a lot like three. A lot like three. Your love, you know, like there's no question about it. But do you think even in my family, the rules were important. There were spoken and unspoken rules, and it was very important. 
and failure was not really an option. But as I look back, my parents both grew up in this world, especially within the church. Church and religion back, you know, even then was very fear-based. So you got caught, if you were at the movies when Jesus came back, you weren't going. He was not taking you. You were, you know, you were, you were at a dance. Heaven forbid you were at a dance. We grew up with the joke, uh, I don't know, what was the joke? <laughs> yeah, there was this, the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally butcher it now, dang it. Um, yeah, but the whole idea was why we don't dance in church, and it's because dancing leads to sex, and the opposite was also true, you can't have sex because sex leads to dancing, and so it was like this equal, like, it was just, it was just bad, like, you can't do it, it's all, it's all explicit, it's negative, and if you were doing it, and Jesus came, like, and so you were in constant fear, because scripture's clear, you don't know the time of the day when Jesus is going to come back, so you're, if you're doing anything bad at that time, you are just stuck, you're stuck, the Antichrist is coming, and now you are just going to have to live with it. And so there was this terrifying feeling growing up. Failure was not an option. And I remember for me, um, particularly mine and my dad's relationship was very tense growing up. We have an incredible relationship now. I wouldn't be able to work with him or for him otherwise. But growing up, it was, it was extremely tense. I was a very rebellious child, which as I look down my family tree, comes from my mom's side. My grandpa taught us that on my mom's side. He was the one that was like, question all authority. Who has the right to tell you? You go to the doctor and they don't, you don't, they don't give you the right opinion? What do they know anyways? <laughs> like, grandpa, they went to school for this kind of thing. You know, like they kind of know what they're talking about. But, but these are kinds of things that started to, to permeate into our, into our family. And so growing up, it affected my view of God. It affected my, my experiences. It affected my own internal sense of, of success and failure because failure wasn't an option. And so I was terrified of failing. I was terrified of doing the wrong thing. I was terrified not just because my parents, I knew that they loved me, but because I was terrified that I was disappointing God at every single turn. And you get to a certain point when you, dis when you feel like you're disappointing someone long enough and you feel like there's no way to kind of counterbalance that, you just kind of give up. And I did. I did. For a while, I fully gave up. And it's been this tension, and maybe you recognize some of these. Maybe yours was more dysfunctional. Maybe you grew up in a family where there was no clear, real leadership. Maybe you had absentee parents or a single parent or um, maybe a dad who struggled, you know, worked all day, came home, was completely emotionally unavailable, and the only time you got his attention is if he was mad at you. And at that point, then you got his full attention, but it came with his full wrath. Maybe you were in the dictatorship type of family where it is this way or else. You are cut off from the family. You are out. What kind of level of health did you grow up in? See, I want to visit back a couple before this series. We were in a series about Joseph, and we talked about Joseph's story and how um, Joseph grew up in this family uh, that was extremely dysfunctional. And I love that the Bible is so honest about the dysfunction within Scripture. And so what we see is Joseph is 17, super prideful and arrogant, has this dream that he rules over his family, makes sure to tell them about it, first bad choice, you know, is already ready the favored kid of his dad, favoritism, also tough, not a good option. Um, 
So the other brothers get so fed up that they sell him into slavery, thinking they're never going to see him again. While he's in slavery, he begins to actually do really well, only to find himself then accused of rape, falsely accused of rape, and imprisoned, where he has an opportunity to get out, but is forgotten, and is finally brought out, comes before Pharaoh, and is in an instant made from someone who was in jail to becoming the second in command over all of Egypt, which was the superpower of the world at that time. Crazy story. But what we see with Joseph is that there's this interesting dynamic with him and his brothers because this has the potential to be the ultimate revenge story. How many of you have ever seen The Count of Monte Cristo or read The Count of Monte Cristo? It's like the ultimate revenge story. We love revenge stories in America. I don't care what anybody says. There's like every season a new revenge story plot line comes out. And we like it because it feels like justice in our hearts. And we don't want to admit it, but it feels good to see somebody get what they deserve, even if it's like a nail gun through their head. I know it's aggressive, but that's what happens a lot of times. I don't know why, but the movie industry loves it. <laughs> People are like, oh gosh. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. Like I said, they're all at marriage retreats, so it is what it is. You're stuck with me. Um, but Jacob, and, you know, he finally comes in back into the picture. Joseph brings his whole family in, and they're reunited. And, and, like, Joseph deals with his stuff, brings the family in. He forgives them. They come back. And Jacob and the rest of the family is able to live with them for 17 years before Jacob finally passes on. So Jacob passes on, and in, verse, uh, in chapter 50, at the very end of Genesis, we see this. And we want to start in chapter 40. Chapter 15, no, chapter 50, verse 14. I'm going to read to you a little bit because this is where I want to kind of land for today. Um, as, we're, as we're talking about this, this is what it says. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had a, accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Notice they didn't even go to him face to face. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of, of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. Look, we are your slaves. Interesting. There's this moment that's crucial in this, in this experience that's going on. But I'm curious what brought Joseph to this point. Because I think as humans, any of us, having this, I mean, his life was a living hell for a significant period of time. To then face his family... And for God to be able to bring redemption and restoration to these relationships, if God can do it there, I feel God could do it anywhere. But y'all have been through some real stuff in your families. There's been all kinds of things. And as we look through generationally, maybe abuse has been characterized down the line. 
Maybe there has been um, explosive anger and hurt. You've grown up with messages about all kinds of things as you've gone on through your life. And maybe you come to church and it's all fine until you start recognizing that maybe there's a lot of things that scripture says that contradict the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments that your family brought you into and that you were brought up with. Things that we don't even question, like gender roles. Who taught you those? Where did those come from? Things like um, how you approach other cultures. What's your role as a parent? What were you taught about sexuality? See, these are the things that as we start going into it, we don't, even, we don't even always know or recognize the things that have snuck in and bled into our perspective and the things that we bring into our faith that don't necessarily have anything to do with scripture but are far more cultural than anything else. I want to take a look at a couple. Maybe, maybe these look something like we got the Ten Commandments, the potential family Ten Commandments, um, but I want you to just see if any of this relates to you, if, if you see any of these that kind of connect to what you were brought up in, maybe one, it's money. Money is the best source of security. The more money you have, the more important you are. Or, money, or make lots of money to prove you made it. The commandment about conflict. Maybe yours looks something like this. Avoid conflict at all costs. Don't get... Don't get people mad at you. Or loud, angry, constant fighting is normal. Maybe, maybe you had a commandment on sex from your family. Sex is not to be spoken about openly. That was my family. That was private matters, and you didn't talk about private things. Men can be promiscuous, but women must be chaste. Sexuality is in marriage will come easily. What about grief and loss? Maybe your your the messages you received were something like this: sadness is a sign of weakness. You are not allowed to be depressed. Get over losses quickly and move on. What about expressing anger? Anger is dangerous and bad. Explode in anger to make a point. Sarcasm is an acceptable way to release anger. Whoops. Six, family. You owe your parents for all they've done for you. Don't speak of your family's dirty laundry in public. Or duty to family and culture comes before everything. What about relationships? Don't trust people. They will let you down. Nobody will ever hurt me again. Don't show vulnerability. Maybe attitudes toward different cultures. Only be close, to, close friends with people who are like you. Do not marry a person of another race or culture. Certain cultures, races are not as good as mine. Success is getting into the best schools, is making lots of money is getting married and having children. Feeling and emotions. You are not allowed to have certain feelings. Your feelings are not important. Reacting with your feelings without thinking is okay. 
what are some of the things that we've grown up with, not ever questioning, not ever challenging, not realizing that this has been brought into who we are, how we function, and now what we pass on to the next generation, and it becomes this generational thing simply because of a place of not even knowing that it was a thing in the first place. See, here's my thing. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to beat your families up. The reality is we are all broken people. It is unavoidable. That's the beauty of this thing. And I say this every time I come on stage, but it literally has to be known and said all over the place that coming into church is like, being, is like showing up to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. You don't show up unless you have a problem. So for all of us to be here is because we're all admitting we are in need of a savior. We all have a sin problem. So once we get that on the table, then it releases the judgment, all of the tension, because we're not here to compare, we're not here to blame shift, we're not here to, you know, to, or to even just make ourselves feel really bad. Maybe you as a parent are looking and going, oh God, what did I do to my kids? But in reality, what we are beginning to recognize and what we see through scripture is that there is always redemption, there is always hope, and there is always healing in reach. But it takes intentionality. It takes looking. And this is uncomfortable. I recognize this is not a comfortable topic. I think that's why my dad gave it to me. <laughs> you preach that one. I'm like, perfect. Why? Because we, if, I think a lot of times we're living in lives, especially in our culture, that's like, it's good enough. Don't mess with it. Leave it alone. Why look back? Just deal with where we're at right now. Let's just move on forward. We, we got to move forward. Just keep on moving forward, dang it. And a lot of times we don't realize that we are, we are literally bear crawling through life because we've been crippled by some of the things that we've, the messages we've received and the ways we've been brought up. And without looking at those and addressing them and healing them, we can never actually move forward in, in the way that God intended for us. Do you have intimacy issues? Struggle sharing and communicating what you're feeling, what's going on inside of you? Are you someone who only allows anger to be the emotion that you showcase because it still helps you to feel strong? Do you only confront people when you're angry because that, otherwise you don't want to hurt their feelings, but when you're angry, you feel, it feels empowering. See, these things profoundly affect us. Jacob's family recognized this. Jacob's, or, Sorry, Joseph's family recognized this. Same, same, but different. <laughs> but Joseph's family, he recognized this in looking at his family. And I wonder if all those years in prison gave him a lot of time to start to kind of rewind and look at what was going on. You see, you recognize this going on. Deceit wasn't a new thing to his, his brothers lying to his dad. This all started back with Abraham. Abraham lied twice about his wife being his sister giving her over to other, like, men. Crazy. <laughs> Messed up. You know, the next, it, it goes down um, with Isaac and his wife, Rachel. Their entire marriage is characterized by lies and deceit. Jacob lies to his dad and, and then to Esau, and he's completely cut off. Then Jacob's the dad, and his 10 sons come in and they lie and deceive him. This is generational. You start to see these patterns playing out 
generationally. And so the book talks a lot about how to do genograms, and this looks like looking back into past generations. And this is why we encourage you, get the book, get plugged into a life group, get connected, because you're, you're missing out if you're not. The genogram helps you to look at areas where you start to see patterns and make connections. This is what the most important thing is, though. Be open to God bringing the beauty of having the Holy Spirit living inside of us as those of us who call ourselves Christ followers is the Holy Spirit is our counselor and begins to do the work inside of us. There are feelings and memories that come up. And as they do, our job is not to just shove them back down or to avoid them, to run from them. It's to begin to understand them so that we can move on from them. You have hurts. Some of you have wounds. It's cause for conversation. Are we willing? But regardless of where you find yourself, maybe some of you feel like your family was so dysfunctional, you don't even know where to start. The beauty is where we start is in understanding that you have been invited to a new family. There is no one disqualified into this family, no matter how functional or dysfunctional your family was, because we have all been invited into a new family. Galatians says it this way. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Take a look at that. It says, but when the, t- the night, no, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own children. And since you are his children, God has made you his heirs. Folks, to to know and to understand our past will help us to move forward, but it is not It is not a deterrent from what God has in store for us or the fact that we are already invited into a relationship with him. You are already invited. The invite is adoption, which means it's not earned. In the Roman culture, to be adopted into a family meant your past debts were all wiped out. You were given a new name, which meant that you now had a position, you had a place, you had had value. And this is true of us as well. When you take on Christ, you take on the name of Christ. You become a child of God. And in doing so, we are brought in to be heirs of a new kind of family. And this is why this matters. Because when you are willing and available for God to do the healing process in you, you become part of the fix, the solution in this broken world. We cannot handle and have any more blind leading the blind of people who who continue to perpetuate racism, sexism, and all these other issues that we start to see, disunity, hate, all of these things. We have to begin to understand and recognize what's inside of us so that we can be used for the kingdom. Forgiveness, redemption, restoration, these are the hallmarks of our faith. These are the desires of our king. And in doing so, we begin to make a shift in our culture that stands against revenge. And we get to look a whole lot more and sound a whole lot more like how how Joseph responds. And this is what he says. Listen to what he says. I want to go back to that story. Recognize his brothers had just said, we are your slaves. But look at what Joseph says. 
In verse 19, but Joseph replied, do not be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. This is a profound moment. What Joseph recognizes is a few things. And we're going to close as the band gets ready to come up. We're, we're going to close out. But one, what I love is that Joseph continued to turn to God instead of blame God. I think we are quick to turn and blame God instead of recognizing that there's a very real enemy who is out to destroy our lives. God can absolutely use our brokenness. And, and Joseph believes that God used all of that and that God led his story to being where it was. But I believe a lot of times we can trust God more than we give him credit for. The other thing is beginning to allow the healing process to happen and recognizing that he began to add his story into the greater story of what God was doing. And in doing so, he started to see it as a part of a bigger story than just my brokenness, my issues, my struggle, my family that continues to be this. And move into how God was going to use it to benefit others' lives. That is where we are as Christ followers. It's, guys, God is not just healing us so that we can live really self-fulfilled, happy-go-lucky, living your dreams kinds of lives. Those are great. But my prayer for each of us is that we begin to hear the cries of those all around us. That we become uncomfortable with seeing the need and the hurts all around us. That we begin to read and become deeply and profoundly unsettled by the, the, the brokenness in this world around us. And rather than judge it and close our doors and try to just live safe, comfortable lives, we engage it. And we bring about the healing that only the kingdom can. This starts, though, primarily, first and foremost, with us being able to step into the men and women of God that he is calling each of us to. That looks like doing the tough work, being willing to face the hard stuff, not so that we get in completely engulfed in it and overtaken by it, but so that God can bring us through it. It grows our compassion, our understanding, and our love for others, and it helps us to then step into not, no longer being bound by it or controlled by it, but to be able to use it. When scripture says that God works all things out for the good, he wastes nothing. God wastes nothing. Not a single, single broken moment in your story. Not a single mistake or wound in your story. And we have to remember that it is never, never too late to shift. To taking a next step into what it looks like to be in relationship with Jesus. So we're going to close. My application for you this week as part of this whole thing and becoming self-aware, I want you to ask somebody that is safe. Don't ask just anybody because this would be a terrible idea. But find somebody safe and ask them, how do you experience me? Because I think we, I think a lot of times we think we've got it more, we've got the front at least figured out more. We know we're broken on the inside, but on the outside. But I think on other sides, 
we tend to be harder on ourselves and not see the redemptive factors and the things that God has already done in our lives that the people around us are seeing. And we need to be reminded of the full truth. The truth is not mean and hurtful and ugly all the time. The truth is actually the very thing that also is encouraging and life-giving. How do you experience me? Because it'll be very telling as to where maybe we can start to focus in doing some of the legwork, becoming emotionally and spiritually healthy and whole individuals. But the beauty is this morning, God is already in the process. We are saved by grace through faith. And no matter what kind of stories and no matter what kind of backgrounds we come from, families, today there is hope because we serve a God who is always restoring broken families. Pray. God, this morning, we're going to close. And I recognize that this is a a more intense, heavier message. And I, I just pray, Father, that rather than people getting bogged down by, by some of the discomfort, God, that it would actually open our hearts to recognizing where you want to work, where you want to heal, to provide a hope and a future because you designed life for freedom. It is for freedom that you have come to set us free and you desire freedom for our marriages and for our relationships with our kids and for our relationships with our coworkers and for the future of what you have in store for us and the freedom from insecurities, false senses of identity and the hangups and the holdups that keep us from stepping into all that you have for us. Father, I pray that this morning we would hear your call, your voice, that as you speak tenderly to us, we would hear you say you are mine. That we get to call you dad. That we are loved unconditionally, unlike any of the family structures that we grew up in, even the most loving families, we cannot experience unconditional love the way that you show it to us. So Father, I pray for each person in this room that you would lead us into lives of fulfillment, lives of fully engulfing, engaging the culture around us with your your love, with who you are. That we would be able to break the chains of the generational brokenness that continues down the line. Father, and that we would begin to live out of a place where our lives are able to affect and bring hope to the world around us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you're here, that you love us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We're gonna close in a song of worship. Why don't you go ahead and stand and join us as we get ready to close out. Just